Hello and welcome to Better Under Pressure. I'm Sarah Milne-Rowe, author of The Shed Method and founder of Coaching Impact. And in this podcast, I talk to leaders from all walks of life about being better under pressure and using pressure for better. I want to explore how we handle pressure in a world that is becoming more and more complex, the impact that that pressure has on our ability to perform at our best and what we do to be better under pressure. I didn't know anything about banking. I went in with a PhD and they saw that I had the desire and the hunger to learn, which I did. So that was my biggest asset, that I will outwork anybody. I will stay late. I will come early. I will go and get coffee for people. I'll put my ego in the drawer. I will bring my willingness. I'll work on weekends. I'll have no boundaries. I'll be whoever you need me to be. If she would have actually checked in with herself, that young woman, and slowed down just a little bit and said, do you really want to do this? I know it looks impressive to the outside world, but is this really what lights you up? And playing not to lose meant this is an opportunity that looks impressive and it looks to the world like I'm winning. But I was dying inside, but I kept going because this is what success looked like. Today, I'm talking to Dr. Mandy Leto, a former investment banker who, as director at a global investment bank, worked in fixed income sales covering hedge funds and central banks. She has a doctorate from Cambridge University and since leaving the banking world, has coached senior executive women around the world, as well as becoming a columnist for Psychologies magazine and having work published in The Times, Forbes, Psychology Today and The Huffington Post, amongst others. She's also host of Enough, the podcast, for recovering perfectionists and overachievers like her. In our conversation, Mandy shares the impact of what her father said to her when she was eight, who controls her first thoughts, and what it's like to be, by her own admission, a hardaholic. Mandy, I am so excited about having you on. I think we're going to have a really rich conversation around pressure. Let's play. Thanks Let's for having play. me. Well, let's start with, um, when do you remember the feeling of pressure? I was about eight years old and there's a massive white spotlight on me. I'm sitting on a chair and my feet don't touch the ground and I'm holding this old Finnish folk instrument on my lap, which is called a zither. It's kind of like an auto harp. And I had learned to play it by ear because I came from a really musical family and I was the smart one. Uh, my brothers were very musical. I was not. So to belong, I learned how to play this old Finnish folk song, which my parents then invited me to play at a massive festival where there were hundreds of people. So I'm sitting on this chair and my little feet are not touching the floor. And I hear these big blue velvet curtains opening. And there's all these lights at the, at the base of the stage that are dazzling my eyes. And I feel my heart pounding in my temples and my mouth is all dried up and my little feet are swinging like pendulums. I remember that nervous energy. And then my fingers started to obediently play the tune, this old Finnish folk song. And right near the end, I had done a really great job right near the end. There was just this, this, quite tricky bit at the end 
And I looked up and I looked out into the audience to see my parents somewhere. And I was dazzled by those lights and my fingers played the wrong notes. And I heard it reverberating through the audience because this mic was positioned right over the zither. And all of a sudden, everything went into slow-mo. And all I could hear was my heart pounding. And I lost my fingering again, and I, I played another wrong note. And it didn't matter. Like at the end, I, it didn't matter to the audience. It mattered to me. But I remember jumping off that stool, that chair, and feeling so ashamed. The audience, they were clapping. And, you know, I was just a little kid and playing this old instrument that most people had never even seen. It was all about the effort from their perspective. But for me... I realized that I hadn't performed. Mm -hmm. And I remember on the trip back in the car, I remember my father driving and I could just see the kind of eerie glow of the green lights at the, the instrument lights at the front of the car. And I remember him saying, you made two mistakes. And it was like really hissy that S and I disappeared inside of myself. And in that moment, I decided, not a conscious thing, it's not my middle-aged self now going back and seeing that moment, playing it out here with you. I realized that I had to perform under pressure and perform wasn't just do the thing that I said I was going to do. I had to perform perfectly or I was unlovable because that's what was playing out for me in real time. Mm -hmm. So pressure was this love-hate thing that I developed a very peculiar relationship with because under pressure when it went right, Mm. that's when love and all the good things were bestowed on me. But when it went wrong, it was a far fall to go into being like below a nobody where love was withdrawn, where praise was withdrawn, where I felt so entirely alone when I didn't perform to the highest standard. So on reflecting on your question on where, when I first felt pressure, that's where my mind took me. Wow. Gosh. And it's so vibrant, that memory for you still, Mandy. That's what's so amazing listening to that story. These, these moments that we have when we first touch pressure, you know, can, can have that impact for the, for the rest of your life. But but what's fascinating, though, because I know a bit about you, is that you are such a high performer. <laughs> you know, the whole of your life has been that. So that that experience when you were eight still put you on the road to actually wanting to achieve. And I mean, I want to talk about this word performance, because I think that's something that has in that whole statement that you've just said there has a positive and it also has a complete and utter negative. And, and that's what I'm interested in is, you know, when when do we hold on to pressure and have a relationship with pressure that, that feels, oh my God, that was so much better. And, oh, I'm getting stronger or, oh, I'm growing or, oh my God, I, I'm, I'm really evolving in terms of who I can be in this world versus what you've just described, which is, sh- it feels very shrinking, feels very, um, debilitating it feels very small um and attached to some and you've attached it very much to belonging and lovable yeah yeah and worth worth yeah if i perform at the highest levels and i please 
and delight others and make them proud, it's actually not about me. It's like, I realize now that it wasn't actually about me at that stage. It was like, that would have helped my father to look good in his community. Prior to that, I now connect the dots as an adult, but I was being rolled out like a little dolly. My father actually tonged my hair that morning. My father, not my mother, with the curling iron. He even burnt my neck yeah. slightly. And, you know, I was rolled out in this little red dress with the white polka dots and my little shiny white mm. shoes and my little frilly socks. And it was all about being impressive. So mm. it wasn't actually about me at all. And I think there's, this is one example of many, many, many others. I don't know mm. why this one stands out so particularly, mm. but I remember that withdrawal of love that I am not worth even talking to. My worth was so Velcroed to what I was doing. Yeah, I'm hearing that. And I, I'm and I'm interested to know how that relationship with that a physical sensation which you described, which I think was the sort of spotlight on your heartbeat that became magnificently loud in your body. Um, and then the, the very quick thought process that you've you've associated with that physical sensation. I'm wondering how that evolved as you got older and what what happened with your relationship with pressure as you got older, Mandy? I thought pressure was something to be mastered and used as a tool. So I think pressure for me is is kind of a neutral thing. I know how to ride it, almost like surfing on it. But I think it's something that I've learned particularly very recently to detach my worth from, and then it can work for me. In certain circumstances, as we get older, I realize like I couldn't always win and therefore pressure became an enemy. And until I learned that I had a very love-hate relationship with pressure because when I could perform, then I felt good about myself. Then I felt like I was winning at life. Then I felt worthy. When I lost, and increasingly as we get older, as we you know have different challenges in life, you can't win at everything. Mm -hmm. So my relationship with pressure became really challenging because it meant that I started only doing things that I was already good at. Oh, and yeah. trying to avoid failing because as long as I was winning, it felt like pressure was a good thing. It reaffirmed the story of who I was putting out into the world of who I was. And as soon as pressure consumed me because I was tired, I couldn't perform for whatever reason, pressure became an enemy because it meant I was worthless. It meant that I was a failure. So the way I tried to navigate that complicated relationship was for a long time during my teens, early 20s, is I would just throw myself into things that I thought I could win at. It, so it wasn't really about increasing my exposure to new things because of this very constraining relationship I had with pressure that I had to master it. I had to win at it. It meant that my world shrunk. Mm. It meant that I was doing only things that I was already good at. So my musical career came to a rapid end after that. <laughs> and I stuck to being the smart kid because that was a game I knew how to win. And I could harness pressure to work for me because I knew the rules of that game and I knew how to navigate that. But when it came to, you know, things like sport or I never even tried drama, I never 
I never picked up a musical instrument again. It was like, that was dead to me. I was no longer going to put myself into those feelings that I never wanted to feel again. So my world shrunk. But one thing I learned about performance was you can perform a goal and perform, you know, we can look at performance in that sense of the word. But some of the messaging that I got from having to feeling like I had to be a perfectionist was that performing for me meant I had to make it look to the outside world that I knew what I was doing. I was in control. Pressure was in my back pocket. I knew how to navigate all the things, never let them see you sweat, all of that type of thing. I became a performance whilst I was performing. Mm -hmm. Okay. What's so interesting about this, Mandy, already is that you you chose the area that you could win in, you said, right? And that feels as you're talking that you have a, you had a strategy to that, to, to sort of, as you say, master pressure so that you could be, and you know, you did do incredibly well, didn't you, in terms of, and still do. Um, what's so interesting though, is what stopped you transferring that, that ability to the areas of your life where you could be better if you wanted to be, maybe you didn't want to be, I don't know, but I'm just interested, you you abandoned it. You abandoned the bits that you thought, actually, I can't win in this, so I'm going to abandon it. What stopped you from, because some people I work with, they transfer, oh, I'm good over here. I understand how pressure works over here. I'll just borrow the way I manage myself around that and place it over here so I can stretch and grow over there. What stopped you from doing that? The performance of who I was supposed to be. And this goes way back. I have so much compassion for that little child now. And as I said, that was one of many instances Mm -hmm. that messaging was so inculcated into me, but it was, it was really about avoiding failing pressure for me was never really about winning. I see that now. Okay. Pressure was about not failing. So I was playing not to lose. To lose. There's a big difference, isn't there? There's a huge difference. Mm Mm-hmm. And that was the thing. It was like damage control at all times. And it's not like I went into days with this in my mind, but I see that it was a program now operating underneath. So I'm not going to do music or drama or any of the other things where I might be mediocre because Mm -hmm. that was the program that I must excel and be perfect at whatever it is that I'm doing. And that's the thing that shrinks your world. It it shrinks the even the the thought of making this a transferable skill. So I would rather be an outstanding public speaker and academic and you know whatever it was that I chose to put my laser beam onto mm-hmm. than being a mediocre whatever else. There was something in me that that I must avoid ordinariness and mediocrity. I mean, failure was not even an option. But the bar became so high that anything other than performing at the very highest levels was simply not even an option. And of course, and this is all operating under the surface, right? Of course, yeah, yeah. And and so this this playing, let's go back to playing not to not to lose versus playing to win. Were there areas of your life, when you chose the areas where you could really excel, were you still playing not to lose in those areas? That's an interesting question. Um, probably, but maybe I maybe I stepped on the gas there a little bit. Um, 
I wonder what it would have looked like. Yes, I'm going to take a stand. I was still playing not to lose, but I was doing it at such a high level. And I was, because I had my performer's mask on, masking all of the inevitable failures that happened, I just learned how to create a decoy over here. So if there's a dumpster fire in this part of my academic life and I'm struggling with this, I will excel over here so as to divert anybody's attention. Mm -hmm. It was all about image management. Yeah. So to really play to win, mm. you have to be willing to flap and fail and splat. And I I was so afraid of those things. So inevitably, I was playing not to lose, even at oh. the very highest levels, which meant I could fool everybody, even myself. Mm -hmm. Oh, I mean, I love that phrase you just used there, you know, in order to play to win, you have to be prepared to flap and fail. And, you know, you know, suddenly I'm back back to learning how to ski you know and playing really safe on the particular sort of very nice sort of red slope but to go on to a black one meant that you know there's possibility that I, I I might fall and that just came up as you were speaking okay so let's go into your investment banking career Mandy so did you succeed in investment banking because you were a master at playing not to lose yes I did because I had, whenever I choose to historically, when I've locked and loaded on something, I've already pre-decided that this is a game I can win and it's therefore worth playing. And I knew how to, I knew how to navigate through this. Like I knew that I had the chops, I had the gumption, and it wasn't that I had a head for numbers. I don't. It wasn't that I get excited about reading the Financial Times and I can't get enough of it. I don't. Uh, I didn't know anything about banking. I went in with a PhD and they saw that I had I had the desire to, and the hunger to learn, which I did. So that was my biggest asset, that I will outwork anybody. I will mm. stay late. I will come early. Mm. I will go and get coffee for people. I'll put my ego in the drawer. I will bring my willingness I'll work on weekends. I'll have no boundaries. I'll be whoever you need me to be. And again, I have so much compassion for that young woman feeling that if she would have actually checked in with herself and put her hand on her heart and slowed down just a little bit and said, hey, do you really want to do this? I know it looks impressive to the outside world, but is this really what lights you up? Mm-hmm. And playing not to lose meant this is an opportunity that looks impressive and it looks to the world like I'm winning, but I was dying inside little by little. Like it didn't take me long to figure out that this, this was not for me, mm -hmm. but I kept going because this is what success looked like to the outside mm -hmm. world. And when you've learned from a very young age to conform and that you're supposed to be a certain way, you're supposed to be passive pleasant, agreeable. You're not supposed to speak your mind. You're supposed to do what you're told and you're supposed to be really, really good at it. And when you win, you don't make a big fuss about it. You just move on to the next thing and you win and you win and you win and you win and you keep your head down and you don't blow your own horn. And when that message is really kind of dyed in the wool, you don't really ever develop a core of what you like. Mm-hmm or mm -hmm. what you want, or your own kind of inner compass for what do I want to say? What do I care about? 
It's just like this, this was just such a perfect moment of stepping into a life that was, this is what success was supposed to look like. So I was going to run at speed and win here. And I figured out how to do that. And that's what I did. Yeah. And playing not to lose sounds exhausting compared with playing to win. Can you just describe, Mandy, how you noticed the energy you were spending in the way you've just described was not good for you? Well, that would require knowing what your body and your feelings are trying to tell you. And part of being able to play not to lose requires an elaborate system of disconnecting from one's feelings. So I had a series of very cleverly placed manhole covers somewhere around my (laughs) sternum (laughs) that blocked off like physical, you can't run at speed and override all your boundaries and outwork everybody. If your body's giving you those pesky, like we need some sleep now, we need to eat green things, like all those air quotes, pesky messages needed Mm. to be squashed down so that I basically became a head on legs to be able to function at that level Mm. in the way that I did. And it was always being externally reaffirmed. So I must be doing the right thing. Oh, look how successful you are. You know, wonderful to see you've come so far when I'd go back home and visit my mom and everybody was like, oh, wow, you're so impressive. So it just feeds the beast yeah. all the time. It feeds the beast. Yeah. So I didn't go into this knowing willingly. I wish I could say I had, would have had the foresight to do that, but I pushed all of that knowing down as far as I could into some kind of black box at the bottom of the proverbial ocean in my body. And my body took me out right? because it was no longer coming along with my punishing work schedule. So my body took me out. Uh, Clever, isn't it? I had to listen. So clever. Ultimately, the body will take you out. Yeah. In hindsight, Mandy, which is a wonderful thing I know, but if you could track back, what would have been the moment where you, where you, I mean, I know you said you had these manhole covers that sort of blocked any communication system within your um, makeup. But in hindsight, what do you wish you had noticed earlier and done something about it? And what were those signs? I'm just thinking if someone's listening to this thinking, that's me, I'm in that process. What what would you say a, a sign is worth really noticing and doing something? Your body will always try to talk to you in different ways. Yeah. So I was having like racing heart, for example. Uh, I was physically exhausted most of the time, but, you know, we also can become normalized to these physical sensations. We forget what it actually feels like to feel good. Um, Really, ultimately, what made me go to the doctor was I got this really hideous scabby rash like a goatee basically it was like a cornflake textured rash around my nose and mouth which was absolutely disgusting and even with weapons grade bobby brown thick concealer i couldn't cover it because it's like you imagine painting that stuff on a cornflake it just looks even more gross so it was vanity ultimately that took me to see a doctor And they did all the blood tests and all the things. And they're like, there's nothing wrong with you. So I thought, I just need more coffee. I need more high intensity interval training. You know, I need to push harder. 
I wish I would have listened when my body started sending up those flares instead mm -hmm. of thinking in that arrogant way that we sometimes push our bodies. Yeah. It's like, oh yeah, I just need to take some spirulina tablets and maybe do a yoga class and read a novel and chill. And then, and then dot, dot, yeah. dot. Yeah. So I, I, I wish I would have listened when the body was sending up those red flares. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I love that point about it becomes normalized. If we don't listen, the body learns, oh, okay, she's just going to carry on or he's just going to carry on. So I need to go to a deeper level, which is exactly what happened to you. Yeah. And took yeah. you out. I was in the gym one day feeling like, okay, well, since two or three doctors have told me there's nothing wrong with me, it must be in my head. I must be weak. I must need more pressure. Yeah. <laughs> because I knew how to win with pressure. So create more pressure. And so I hired a personal trainer who was a semi-professional rugby player. So I actually said, so like, give me your toughest personal trainer. This was typical of me at the time. And he was like six foot five, something like that. And he came in and he was, he said, we're going to start doing boxing. I'm like, bring it. That sounds intense. Bring it. And we were doing this hybrid of boxing. And then he'd put me on the treadmill to run at maximum capacity until my feet could barely keep up with the treadmill. I was literally like my, I, I remember just foaming at the mouth at one stage. And I thought, this is good for me. This is good for me because I had become a hardaholic, right? I knew that the prize was on the other side of pushing myself to the absolute limit. That's what athletes do, right? That's what high performers do. And then we got off the treadmill and I, you know, I was beat red at that stage and I hunched over and he's like, he's putting the boxing gloves on me. He's like, here, give me, giving me the gloves. Like you're doing good. You're doing good. And he's holding up those big foam pads that I'm supposed to punch. And then he's asking me to do these super high kicks. And I remember this feeling of it. This is kind of a flash. And I did that high kick and I completely tanked and I fell on the floor and I couldn't get up off the floor. And uh, he kind of made a joke about it because he knew I was pretty hardcore. And I remember he helped me up and he said, Hey, you know, maybe we should call it a day. I went and splashed some cold water on my face and I looked at the cadaver looking back at me in the mirror. And I thought, Ooh, <laughs> I better have some spirulina tablets and go home and lay down and read a novel, maybe chill for today. And I remember going back and I was so embarrassed. I was so embarrassed to tell him that I needed to chill out today. I said, Oh, maybe I'm coming down with something. Mm -hmm. And that was the beginning of the real unraveling. Like I, I basically went home and I crawled up the stairs and got into the shower. And after the shower, I had my hair in a turban and I, I just like collapsed like an X onto the bed and woke up four or five hours later when my daughter's school was calling me saying, Oh, has there been some mix up with the pickup today? I'm here with your daughter. And again, I I was just going to jump in the car and I thought, oh my God, my hair is still in the turban. I have sheet marks all over my face. I'm in my, it was this constant state of like, I don't know how many more red flags you need in your face, woman. Yeah. But yeah. again, when you're in that place and you crave, there's an addiction to pressure. Mm. You cannot see somebody with the, you know, the, 
red flag waving right in front of you. And just like, get your shit together, Leto, get your shit together, like get, get a grip, get a grip. So that was the mantra I was constantly mm-hmm. telling to mm-hmm. myself and get a grip, getting my shit together equated to push yourself harder. Mm-hmm. It was unthinkable to take my foot off the gas. Mm-hmm. I think this is a really interesting exploration of hugely depleting pressure when pressure becomes no longer a force for good, but an absolute force for, well, you, you called it an addiction. Um, and, and this is where I think understanding your relationship with it is so crucial. A client's coming to mind when I remember she was really very, very overwhelmed with the amount that was going on. You know, there was high stakes, there was uncertainty and there was high volume. And I remember meeting her and I said something like, you know, how's your shed? And she said, well, I've, ju- I've, I've just been to the gym. I'm going to the gym and I'm going to, and it's like this manic sort of response that she gave me. And I remember saying to her, how about just a bath? We can sometimes gravitate. We're just thinking about shed in, you know, my, my language, gravitate to exercise, particularly as a sort of cure to pressure, which often it is in, in a certain dose, but I think it's about knowing your dosage and and not necessarily feeling like you've just got to push through it when everything inside your body and also huge, acutely uh, aware relationship with your body, which, you know, your manhole covers block yeah. that. But I think when we're really attuned, acutely attuned to our body sensations and our body, we we know what is healthy and what is unhealthy. Really well said. I think my early relationship with pressure became a winning strategy for me Mm -hmm. and where it went wrong for me was not updating the winning strategy and understanding that what had worked hitherto and made me very successful, that that was not, that was not the way forward. In fact, it was the undoing of me to continue to do what I'd always done, which was what made it so discombobulating because one's set level for pressure, when it becomes a compulsion or an addiction, it always rises. You win at something and then you have to raise the pressure again. And then when you hit it, guess what happens? The set level changes and you have to raise the pressure again to give you the same dopamine hit to feel like you're still winning at life, to feel like you're still worthy. Yeah, And that's why feelings and all those body signals are such an inconvenience because they get in the way. But again, none of this is conscious. That's the insidious thing about it is it's all operating under, you know, un- underneath. And there's that constant external validation, like, oh, I don't know how you do it. You're so amazing. I, You're such an inspiration. All of those things that now I see that was all, that was all a balm yeah. for that little girl who needed to be loved and praised because she never got to learn how to do that for herself. So to stop doing, to cease doing, to be outside of now what I see as maladaptive pressure, to learn how to move oneself to neutral or to low pressure yes, meant all of a sudden like that shift is necessary in leadership. Yes. And life. Yes. But 
I was jammed in that one setting because that's the only way I knew how to be. My entire identity, my entire sense of what achievement and success look like were all about operating. I was a one-trick pony. That's what I knew how to do. So the thought of not doing that meant I had no identity that was relatable or that I had no, nothing to offer. Okay, there are many useful insights in what Mandy's describing here. I want to pause and gather a few of them up. This is such a powerful description of what can happen when our relationship with pressure becomes deeply unhealthy. It starts to override our own support system, our own sense of what we need in order to maintain that relationship as a strong, enlivening partnership. It reminds me of episode 21 with Miriam Coupard, who discovered one morning that she couldn't even get out of bed. I love this point that Mandy makes about the importance of updating our strategy, making sure that we keep learning, creating ways to go meta on ourselves, to slow down and step away, even if it's just for a moment, so we can actually notice how we're operating. Becoming intentional about asking ourselves, is this strategy still working for me? Well, I know it worked for me over here, but now I think it needs updating because it's not working for me anymore. Our lives move through different phases, so understandably what helped us thrive in the past doesn't necessarily mean it's the most useful strategy now. You've probably heard me use this phrase before, but we need to become a continual scientist on our own behavior if we're to keep thriving and growing. We have to keep reviewing our relationship with how we want to be. Mandy described herself as a hardaholic, pushing herself to the absolute limit. And over time, her habits had been built to keep her achieving higher, better things. Her mantra of get your shit together, Leto, is a great example of such a habit. She was, as she puts it, jammed in this system, addicted to pressure that had created manholes to cover any internal responses that might have told her otherwise. For Mandy, it was about reducing the pressure she was placing on herself. For others, it might be about increasing it because you want more of a stretch. The thing is, it's about knowing the dosage of pressure that's most useful for you now, in this moment in your life. We're constantly reminded to update our computer and devices to enable them to operate more effectively. Why not us? Mandy talked about returning to neutral. If we don't have ways to return to neutral, we can't choose which gear we want to operate in. Instead, we just too easily keep going at one speed until we run out of fuel. Talking to Mandy reminds me of just how important it is to have ways to check in with ourselves to find out if we need an update. And the key here is to return to neutral first. It's so much trickier to adjust when we're in the thick of it. That might mean having trusted people in our lives to point it out, for example, or it might mean creating a designated time in the week, a month, a date with oneself to reflect and review. I had a client once who wrote out a few guiding principles that mattered to him to help him reflect on the week just gone. Did he have sufficient energy to be the dad he wanted to be, the partner, the brother, the friend, the boss, the team member, etc. Returning to neutral might simply be honoring micro moments each day to step away into fresh air, potentially, or just breathe. The fact is we need to have ways to notice before we can choose to update. Otherwise, we run the risk, like Mandy, of becoming jammed in one way of operating when we're caught up in the energy of pressure. I'm really intrigued about your phrase about I was jammed in this identity. And it leads me to think about organizations and the culture in which you're operating in. So the environment that you're also performing in or becoming in, 
Would you say that in your in the culture, in the investment bank culture where you were working, in the time that you were working, were there any was there any other way of operating, or was, were you jammed in the system as well because that's what you could see everybody else doing, or were there people that were doing it or managing it differently that you just didn't see? I think this is where the reticular activator comes in, right? That if you're going to buy a Volvo for example, all of a sudden you start seeing all the Volvos out there. If you're pregnant, all of a sudden you start seeing all the, like, where have all these pregnant women come from? Well, they were there all along. You just weren't tuned to them. So I suspect that there probably were people who were in that better work-life balance, uh, though I'm not sure that's really a thing in banking, at least back in the day. But I think I was looking for those people and associating myself with those people who were in that um, like radical overachiever, like those were the benchmarks and those were the, so I think it's the pool is kind of against you in the work-life balance to begin with. But then I think I kind of homed in on those individuals who really looked like they were giving their all and were particularly impressive. Because that's what you wanted to be. Yeah. Okay. So you left investment banking because your body took you out. <laughs> What's your relationship with pressure now in the work that you've chosen for yourself with the people that you're now working with in the life that you've now created? What is your relationship with pressure, Mandy? Pressure and I have become reacquainted and it has taken probably 15 to 20 years of being in the deep work, by which I mean coaching, by which I mean retreats, by which I mean working with spiritual teachers, by which I mean like doing tons of different somatic practices, um, everything from you know embodiment work to visioning, to, you know, all of it, meditation. And I think at the beginning, it's interesting because there's a journey here. I don't want to just talk like the smug person who's on the other side of it because I'm still in it and I probably always will be. So let's get that out right from the beginning. Mm -hmm. When I started to do the work, mm -hmm. by which I mean inner exploration, healing, all of that, I took it very literally so I, I worked with a functional medicine person and went to acupuncture and all the things. And then I remember my nutritional therapist said, I've taken you as far as I can go. The rest is an inside job. So we need to get you in your body. So I was still coming at it with that high, well, actually overachieving mindset. I literally had a clipboard of all the things that I had to do. It was like, okay, find best acupuncturist, check go to meditation class. I go to the meditation class. I'm not going to do it once. I'm going to do it twice. And I'm going to be the A-star pupil. And I'm going to buy the lotus candles and the meditation cushions and all the apps. And I'm going to have this unbroken streak of meditation. So I'm going to get out the other side as fast as possible and be the best at it. And I can look at myself now and say, oh, bless my cotton socks. Look at me doing that thing. But I hadn't really realized that I was using the thing that had got me into that state to begin with to try yeah. to hack my healing. Yeah, it was that it was that present. So it's like fish can't see the water they're swimming in. Like that was me. And little by little, as I started to follow some of the 
suggestions of various coaches and practitioners that I was working with, I think I went into it with the headspace of, oh, I'll just just do this thing and it'll tick this box. So whether it was five rhythms dancing, like that was the point of getting into my body. Well, instead of going getting into my body, I went and bought the DVDs of the five rhythms dancing because it's a dance with no steps. I'm like, well, how do you do a dance with no steps? I can't improvise. I don't want to look like a nugget being there, not knowing what I'm doing. I need to know what I'm doing. So I went, there's me doing my thing. I went and bought the DVDs and I was like making notes of the steps that you can do in a five rhythms class so that I wouldn't not belong, that I wouldn't not look like I know what I'm doing. So I know these are quite laughable now, but that was real for me at the time. I was so afraid not, you know, I didn't, I was playing not to lose. Yeah. Even in a five rhythms class. Yeah. It was so important for me to look good and look like I knew what I was doing. So little by little, after years of doing these sorts of things and various people speaking truth to me, including one conversation where someone said to me, I see what you're doing. You fool everybody in this room of high performers, but you don't fool me. And who you actually are under that lacquered facade Who you actually are is so much more compelling than all this stuff that you're trying to do. I don't relate to you. And I remember it felt like somebody saw through me, including me. I was like, oh, what could possibly be more compelling than all the efforting I'm doing here? And that was the beginning of learning to get messy and to shift my relationship with pressure. All of a sudden realizing like for me to actually let go, let go my bony death grip of this relationship with pressure that I have, I need to splat. I need to be willing to have people point and laugh. I need to be willing to flap and not know what I'm doing. And I, again, I did not go into that gracefully, but Little by little, incrementally, I realized too, I went to sit in the presence of one of the top coaches in the planet. I flew 12 hours to sit with him for three hours. And he finally looked over at me and said, nobody's coming to save you, Mandy. We save ourselves. And I was sitting there with my notepad. I'm like, well, shit, you could have told me that before I got on the airplane. Well, (laughs) that was such a moment. And actually in hindsight, it was one of the best things. I was looking for answers outside of me. And I was willing to travel the world and sit in the presence of all these people. And I realized like, oh, I actually need to cultivate a relationship with trusting myself of actually realizing that it's safe for me to fail. It's safe for me not to be addicted to pressure. It's safe for me to have a constructive relationship with pressure. So that was a long, that's a highlight reel of lots and lots of sometimes very, very painful and slightly mortifying experiences that have kind of softened me Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and left me more in an, in a healthy relationship with pressure, not always, but most, more of the time. And if there were like a few non-negotiables for you in your life now around keeping pressure in the healthy space rather than the unhealthy space. What, what would they be? What would be your things that actually you've learned about yourself that need to be part of your life to keep that balance? Don't trust my first thought. My first thought is still very much in that you have to work harder. You have to, you have to push through. That's still always my first thought. 
So I know not to trust that. And I just slow down and I take a breath. And depending on what's at stake, I close my eyes and put my hand on my heart and I drop into my body because that's not still not intuitive for me yet after 15 yeah. years. Yeah. And I'll drop into my body and I'll wait for a second thought to bubble up. And the second thought is usually so much more self-compassionate and kinder. And she's, this voice in me is very polite. The, the voice that comes out initially is what I call judgy Janet. She's, she's like the ringleader of my inner critics, really, oh. really scathing and really critical has that Joan Collins energy, like very aloof, very smug, real know-it-all. And judgy Janet is usually always the first to respond. And I know I have a multitude of other kinder voices. A lot of those feel like elder voices mm -hmm. that are maybe my 85-year-old self or, or way more compassionate selves, but they're not the first to answer most of the time. So I need to, I need to know to slow down and check in with them. And then from that place, I make a decision. There's an urgency around that judgy Janet voice. So I've learned to slow down when that immediate ping comes up. There's a sharpness to it. There's an urgency to it. And there's, the, yeah. there's that metallic drive energy. Whereas that other voice, it's more slow. It's like a mug of tea. It's a hot bath kind of energy. Yeah. It's wise. Yeah. Oh, I love Judgy Janet. Immediately, my pessimistic Paula uh, has risen to the surface <laughs> in this conversation, thinking I could get on with her, says pessimistic Paula. We'd have a ball. But I, I think, you know, and, and in a way, I've learned to, um, to be a bit more friendly to pessimistic Paula, because I think in the past, she's really, she's been very helpful for me. And I think probably... Judge, Judgy Janet has also probably been very helpful. My suspicion is she's she's she helped little the younger Mandy. But this is all part of your point about updating, I think. You know, she doesn't need to be the protagonist of the show anymore, does she? Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. And it's coming back to your question, it's not trusting my first thought. It's slowing down. It's consciously cultivating a relationship with my body. And understanding that the body is not just an inconvenient meat suit that the head is dragging around because it's got nowhere else to live. It's fundamentally changing that relationship with various practices, whether it's nutrition, a commitment to sleep, you know, a, a commitment to meditation. And my previous relationship with meditation was I'm going to hack this. And I'm going to make it work for me, kind of like what I had done with pressure so that it'll give me what I want. I'm going to squeeze meditation and then it will give me what I want. Whereas meditation is not a way for me to be away from the thoughts that are constantly a torrent in my mind, which I, su I suppose is the case for a lot of high achievers. Being in a meditative practice is being in the reality of my body. Mm. It's being in reality in general. And I think for somebody who was wired like me to constantly perform and achieve, my feet have barely touched ground in the present for decades because mm -hmm. I've either been trying to run away and push against the past, or I've been already scoping kind of like a drone into the future, 
And a practice of being in my body means I need to be here now. I need to be in my body and listen to what it's trying to say to me. So there's, for me, the practice of being in the body is anchoring me in reality. And I think that's what Judgy Janet and being addicted to to pressure always tried to circumvent because the body is full of inconveniences. Yeah, It's full of things I didn't want to know. It's full of red flags I didn't want to have to deal with. Yeah. So those are some other things that I think have helped to shift my relationship with pressure. Thank you. So usefully practical as well that I can imagine someone being able to take something from that, even for a few seconds, even in a work environment, you know, it just doesn't need swathes of time to honor some of these practices. We all have an inner voice. And for those of you out there thinking you don't, it's the one telling you that. It's funny how other people can unhelpfully take up lodgings in our head and remain there for far too long, sometimes without us even realizing. Both Mandy's judgy Janet and my pessimistic Paula can easily outstay their welcome. However, when we get curious about the chatter in our heads, the soundtracks we play out, particularly in moments of pressure, we can decide whether they're useful or not. As I mentioned, sometimes pessimistic Paula is helpful to me. She points out the likely problems ahead so that I can prepare for them better. We can always create new soundtracks, new mantras to enable us to thrive. Professor Samuel Makora, Director of Research at University of Kent's School of Sport and Exercise Sciences, conducted a series of experiments with athletes on bikes. His research revealed that when the athletes heard words like go and lively, rather than words like toil and tough, their performance improved by 17%. When the athletes heard these motivating words, their perception of effort was reduced and their capacity increased, without them even being aware of it. Small linguistic shifts can have a massive impact on how we feel and our relationship with effort. I had a client once who was so fed up with chastising herself for not achieving enough in a day, she decided to disrupt it by starting her day with the self-talk, Karen, do as little as possible. And to her astonishment, she had a very productive day. I love the idea of checking in with a second thought. We all have inner critics that are louder or more vocal than others. We can choose which ones to listen to and when. We can say thanks, first thought. Now, which other self-talk might be more useful to help me achieve what I want? But the key message that Dr. Mandy is emphasizing here is that we have another part of us that's also trying to talk to us in a different way, our body. If we fail to listen to our physical sensations, we run the risk of our body speaking louder. And eventually, if we continue to ignore it, it will force us to listen one way or another. James Joyce, in his short story, A Painful Case, describes one of his characters, Mr. Duffy, as someone who lives a short distance from his body. I'm sure we've all experienced people, or even as Mandy experienced, had a moment of becoming our own version of Mr. Duffy, where our head has turned up to a meeting, but our body's been left behind. So that we can really listen to ourselves, be it to the unhelpful stories we run in our head or the red flares our body sends up, It's vital to find ways to be truly present with what's happening for us in the here and now. Then we can choose to build our own creative ways to maintain a healthy, enlivening relationship with pressure. Your relationship with performance now? 
It's such a great question. It's something I've been mulling over because I feel like I'm in a new space at the moment where I'm not so excited about goals anymore. For somebody who's been an overachiever all my life, I ate goals for breakfast. That's what I did. And I always found ways to win. And it's kind of like I'm sitting here thinking I should really have a goal. And it's not to say that there aren't things that I want to do or projects I want to complete. It's just lost the charge for me as I've become more embodied, as I've slowed down, as I've made space in my life for the things that really, really matter, being in community with other like-minded people who are also on the journey has perhaps been the biggest game changer, aside from not listening to my first thought and actively cultivating practices to honor my body. The being in community has made me realize that it's it's less about out there in the ether and more about, and I have my hand on my heart right now. It's like, what, what is happening in here? That feels deeply interesting to me to explore what's my relationship with perform. That's not a, a question that's on the front of my mind, but it's amazing what starts to happen playfully in a completely different way when I am in my body, when I am in community with other people who've got my back and who will call me on my behaviors that maybe mm. aren't serving me. So it's, I think performance for me has shifted to be more of an inner game and more of a team sport, so to speak, and more of something that we do together. And it's actually no longer, oh, this is interesting. I'm saying this for the first time. I'm just checking if this is true. It's more about who I'm becoming in community rather than what the arrival point is. That feels so nourishing for me right now. You know, with people like you, Sarah, and being on this journey and comparing notes and what's working and, uh, you know, bearing it all. It's not just a highlight reel anymore. Like, look at all the ways I've won. It's just like being in that together, there's no feeling like that. And the the projects still happen. Yeah. The, the goals still seem to happen, but it's it's coming at them from a really different way. Mm -hmm. I think it's interesting that the goals still happen, but they're just not the focus. I'm hearing from what you're saying. Yeah, feels way less interesting to me. It's sort of like been there, done that. It's really about bringing all of me and mm -hmm. being accepted and, and realizing that I'm actually okay, which is such, such a simple thing, yeah. but it's such a, it's freeing. It's really freeing. Yeah. Wow. Thank you. Well, this leaves me with my last two questions, which I always ask, as you know, that if somebody has been listening to this and they are keen to create a more enlivening relationship with pressure. What would you pay forward to those listeners, Mandy? Take your body with you in that exploration. It's so easy to think that if our head just leaps ahead, that our body will tag along. But the wisdom, the map 
is so often in the body. I wish somebody would have paid that forward to me. And I wish that I would have had the capacity to hear it back in the day. Thank you. And do you have another one? So many of these things feel so heavy and so serious performance, leadership, you know, I think one of the big things that has shifted for me is to hold things more lightly mm. and that the white knuckling actually is constriction and the open palm policy of allowing things space to breathe, allowing slowness, allowing different perspectives, allowing winning strategies to shift, allowing playfulness levity, you know, like all of this, this whole leadership thing is too important to be taken too seriously. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This was a really important conversation for me too. So thank you for holding this space so beautifully as you do. It's been an absolute pleasure, Mandy. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Better Under Pressure with me, Sarah Milne Rowe. If you enjoyed it, please do subscribe and let us know what you found useful or what you'd like to know more about. Our aim is to share as many examples as possible of what people do to manage pressure for better. If you're interested in any of the practices mentioned, check out my book, The Shed Method. Alternatively, you can find us at Coaching Impact or me on LinkedIn and Instagram. Better Under Pressure was produced by the fab team at Smart Cookie Media. Thanks so much for listening and until next time, goodbye.